Israeli officials say they have a plan to evacuate areas in Gaza ahead of a possible invasion of the southern city of Rafah. It's Monday, February 26th. This is WBMAR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Nikki Haley's possible path forward following a weekend loss to Donald Trump in her home state of South Carolina's Republican primary. Let people's voices be heard. I think what's really important is to know that the majority of Americans dislike Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And ahead of the primary tomorrow in Michigan, officials there are preparing to protect poll workers from harassment. We want to have every poll worker the ability to quickly summon law enforcement if and when anything arises at a polling location. We didn't have that in place in 2020. Plus, ExxonMobil is suing two investors over a proposal to reduce emissions. Clearing skies in low 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in a case that could reshape the future of the Internet. As NPR's Kerry Johnson reports, the justices will be examining laws in Florida and Texas that compel big social media companies to carry posts they find objectionable. Texas and Florida passed the laws after social media platforms blocked former President Donald Trump following the Capitol riot in 2021. The state laws prevent big social media companies from banning users based on their political viewpoints. Republican leaders there say the sites have been silencing conservative ideas. Lawyers for the social media platform say the laws violate decades of First Amendment precedent and could expose users to messages that are hateful, violent or unsafe. Legal experts say if the justices uphold the sweeping state laws, it could end content moderation as we know it, changing the shape of modern social media. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The impeachment process against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas could move to the Senate this week. The impeachment articles must first be walked over to the Senate by managers from the House. Then senators have to be sworn in as jurors. Alabama Republican Governor Kay Ivey says she wants to support legislation that protects in vitro fertilization, a process that helps people get pregnant. Some Alabama fertility clinics stopped offering IVF last week after the state Supreme Court said fertilized eggs are children. Illinois Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth says she has repeatedly introduced a national bill to protect IVF. She says she used the procedure to have her own children. In my case, when we had five fertilized eggs and three were non-viable, when my doctor discarded those with my consent, uh, that would be considered potentially manslaughter or murder. Basically, Republicans have put the rights of a fertilized egg over the rights of the woman. And that is not something that I think the American people uh, agree with. She spoke to ABC. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is again calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and the release of all hostages. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. He spoke at the opening of the UN Human Rights Council. Guterres says nothing can justify Hamas's deliberate killing, torturing, and kidnapping of civilians. And he says nothing justifies the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Rafa is the core of the humanitarian aid operation. Uh, all out Israeli offensive on the city would not only be terrifying for more than a million Palestinian civilians sheltering there, it would put the final nail in the coffin of our aid programs. More than 10 countries, including the United States, suspended funding to the relief agency for displaced Palestinians after some UNRWA employees were shown to have participated in the October 7th attack on Israel. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Schlein in Geneva.
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Maura Healey is renewing her calls for Stewart Healthcare to leave Massachusetts. The for-profit healthcare company was supposed to turn over financial documentation to the state by the end of the day on Friday. Healey's office says the information it provided was incomplete and insufficient. The financially troubled steward runs nine hospitals in the state. It also employs about 16,000 people here. Steward says it's working on a plan to restructure its operations in the Northeast. Nearly 2,500 Massachusetts residents will see their student loan debt wiped clean in the coming weeks. It's part of President Biden's ongoing efforts to curb nearly $2 trillion in student debt nationwide. WBWAR's Max Larkin reports. The White House's latest stab at loan forgiveness is narrower than the policy the Supreme Court struck down last year. To be eligible, borrowers must be 10 years into paying down relatively small loans of $12,000 or less. But attorney Adam Minsky says with costs of living historically high, it could still make a big difference to the Massachusetts borrowers he represents. We tend to think of people struggling with student loan debt as those who have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. But there are plenty of people who default and get into some hot water, even with relatively small balances. The policy will wipe out an average of nearly $8,000 in debt for each eligible borrower in the state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. North Shore Congressman Seth Moulton is worried Republican leaders in the House do not have a plan to avert a government shutdown. The latest continuing resolution to fund the federal government expires on Friday. Moulton says Speaker Mike Johnson needs to release a plan for debate. My hope is that behind the scenes he knows what he's doing, but what I hear from my Republican friends and colleagues is that they have a lot of uncertainties. This is the fourth time in six months that Congress has faced such a deadline. Stopgap spending bills are keeping the government running. Harvard University may soon consider implementing a former formal stance of neutrality. The Harvard Crimson reports that interim President Alan Garber is expected to announce a working group to consider the change. This would mean that the university would not make political statements as an institution. Former Harvard President Claudine Gay resigned over criticism to her response to the war between Israel and Hamas. It's 7.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org and the Annie E. Casey Foundation. In professional women's hockey, Boston beat Minnesota 2-0 yesterday. Boston now has back-to-back wins following consecutive losses to New York and Ottawa last week. Next up, Boston visits Montreal on Saturday at 4. In NHL action, the Bruins are in Seattle to play the Kraken tonight. Next game time is at 10. There's a slight chance of some sprinkles or snow flurries this morning. Then cloudy skies gradually clear and we'll have highs in the low 50s. Tonight, clear skies and lows around freezing. Tomorrow, clouds move back in and we'll have highs back in the low 50s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. We get a bonus day this year, this week, but what is the point of leap year? We have the answer for you in just a few minutes. But first, two initiatives in Gaza are on a collision course. 
Negotiators are inching toward a new temporary ceasefire with an exchange of Israelis held hostage by Hamas for Palestinians detained in Israel. Those are the elements of the deal. Despite American objections, Israel's military could launch a new offensive into crowded southern Gaza where displaced Palestinians have been seeking refuge. Now, Israel's prime minister says even if there is a ceasefire, he will not call that off. He will only delay it. NPR's Daniel Eschen is in Tel Aviv to tell us more. Good morning, Daniel. Hi, Michelle. Good morning. So could you just start by telling us what we know about Israel's intentions for Rafah? Well, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is still insisting that Israel's next military objective is Rafah. This is the southernmost city in Gaza. And as Israeli troops have been sweeping from north Gaza to central Gaza to south Gaza, this is the last part of Gaza where Israeli troops have not yet entered. It's where Israel says most of the remaining Hamas battalions are left. And here is what Prime Minister Netanyahu said this weekend on CBS. Once we begin the Rafah operation, the intense phase of the fighting is weeks away from completion. Not months, weeks away from completion. But the U.S. has been warning against this operation. Um, This is an area where more than a million Palestinians have been sheltering. And so last night, the Israeli military presented plans to Israel's war cabinet, uh, plans on how they will evacuate Palestinians from that area and and their battle plans there as well. So all of this is, is Israel signaling to the U.S. that, you know, despite the objections of Its most important ally, Israel, does intend to move forward in Rafah. Now tell us more about that deal being negotiated. Where do the talks stand now, and what are the main points of agreement so far as we know? Well, we have heard from an Egyptian official close to the talks who spoke with NPR uh, that the next stage of the negotiations are going to be held in Qatar. Uh, Israeli, Egyptian and U.S. intelligence officials will be meeting. And they're following up on a meeting held late last week in Paris. And they're working off of a basic framework here, which would be a six-week ceasefire and uh, the release of some Israeli hostages exchanging them for some Palestinian prisoners. So the Israeli media are now reporting that uh, what they're going to be working out are some of the details, like the number of Palestinian prisoners uh, they're willing to release. Also, part of these talks we're hearing are discussions for a new technocratic Palestinian government to manage uh, all of the Palestinian territories, uh, Gaza and the West Bank, when the war is over. And to that end, the Palestinian Authority government submitted its own resignation today. There is this sense of urgency, Michelle, to reach some big deal here for at least a, a temporary ceasefire before the Muslim holy month of Ramadan begins in just two weeks. And Daniel, finally, but certainly not least important, Can we hear more about the conditions in Gaza? I mean, we're nearly five months into this, and there's been massive destruction, as as you've been reporting, elsewhere in Gaza. Tell us about conditions. Yeah, the United Nations is reporting significant food shortages and extreme hunger. Um, The last time the UN was able to deliver food to northern Gaza was more than a month ago. And the Israeli cabinet discussed plans to try to get aid safely to northern Gaza. Part of the problem has been um, when aid enters from Egypt into Gaza, Palestinians have, have stolen aid from the trucks. It just shows that sense of desperation there. Israeli strikes continue. We could see a grim new milestone uh, by the end of the week. It's approaching 30,000 Palestinians killed, according to Gaza health authorities. That is NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you so much. You're welcome. One One of Nikki Haley's funders is out. 
A political action committee aligned with the billionaire Koch brothers says there's nothing more they can do. Haley lost South Carolina's Republican primary against Donald Trump. She told this program last week that regardless of that result, she was going to stay in the race at least through Super Tuesday, just over a week from now when many states vote. Jonah Goldberg is watching all this. He is editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and a periodic guest here. Welcome back, sir. Hey, it's always great to be here. I'll just remind people, years ago, your wife worked for Nikki Haley. You've met her. You've known her. I think you don't talk very much, if at all, now. But what's the value of a candidate staying in the race if they think they have little chance? Well, I mean... One way to think about this, the way I think about this is there's very little, barring some deus ex machina, some, you know, uh, calamity on the campaign trail for for Donald Trump or Mm -hmm. some legal jeopardy that takes him out of the race. He's the nominee. That's just the fact. But um, normally in, in party politics on both sides, the way it works is there are factions within the party the faction that loses the race for the nomination is set up for the next time to say, your guys had your chance. Now it's our turn. And that should have happened in 2020, but Donald Trump uh, refused to admit that he lost, Mm -hmm. which completely ruined the sociology of that argument. And so one of the things that Nikki Haley is doing, whether it's for her or simply for the non-Trumpian wing of the Republican Party is setting up a permission structure that says you can be a Republican, but you don't have to drink the Kool-Aid. And I think that alone is a very valuable thing for the GOP and for the country. You know, when I think about her candidacy, I've sometimes thought way back to 1992 when Pat Buchanan ran against a sitting Republican president, George H.W. Bush. And if memory serves, he lost every single primary. He never had a chance, but he stayed in throughout the entire race, got millions of votes and made his point. Yeah. And recall that when Pat Buchanan got 30 percent of the vote, I think it was in New Hampshire in Mm -hmm. 1992, People lost their minds about what that said about the weakness of George H.W.'s, Bush's uh, incumbency, of his presidency. We keep going back and forth talking about how Trump is running as a quasi-incumbent or a de facto incumbent. A, an incumbent who loses 40% of the vote in a highly military, very conservative state like South Carolina in the primary is a profoundly weak incumbent. And that's one of the things that uh, Nikki Haley is exposing, is that somewhere between a quarter and, you know, 40% of the Republican Party is just not that into Donald Trump. And I think that's another reason this is hugely or could be hugely important. It could all amount to nothing if Nikki gives a full-throated endorsement and says Donald Trump's the guy. That yeah. would break my heart, but, you know, it could happen. Um, we know that if Trump wins... He's not going to appoint a cabinet of people who who keep him in line. He's not going to appoint John Kelly's and John Bolton's and and William Barr's and people like that who will say no to him. He's going to appoint yes men and yes women down the line. And so creating a political climate where voters at least hold other Republicans accountable who are doormats for him 
is a useful thing. Uh, whether I that wanna, happens wanna, remains wanna, to be seen, but yeah, we're trying. I, I want to note, I, I want to acknowledge there are a lot of independent voters or more moderate Republican voters who have uh, shown their distaste for Trump, who voted for Haley. And yet I want to ask in the few seconds we have here, if this is really going to hold up. 40% or so of the Republican electorate may be voting against Donald Trump at this point. But doesn't history show that over time, over the next few months, the vast majority of them are going to get in line behind their party's nominee and they're going to vote for Trump? For sure. You know, Nikki Haley is very similar to Bernie Sanders in 2016 and even 2020. She is, you know, those voters eventually came home for the Democratic nominee. A lot of these people are going to come home for the Republican nominee if it's Donald Trump. But if you reduce, if that at 40% turns out to just be 15%, that is a very, very difficult thing for Donald Trump to overcome. Traditionally, you need about 90% of your own party in the tank to win a general election, and then you try to win over independents. Independents split more favorably for Joe Biden. So, look, I don't think it's going to be a two-way race, but if it were a two-way race, I think it's very hard to see how Joe Biden doesn't win, um, in part because of what Nikki Haley is exposing. Jonah Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. Pleasure to hear from you. It's great to be here. Thank you. We get an extra day this month. Yay! 2024 is a leap year, which means February has 29 days. This morning, we investigate why. So the leap year is a really fascinating astronomical phenomenon, if you can call it that. Jackie Ferretti is an astronomer at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and she does call it that because she's got the math. Most years last 365 days, but it takes the Earth just a little longer to go around the sun, 365 days, six hours and nine minutes. And that 0.242190 days extra to go around the sun is the entire reason why we have a leap year. It's an extra quarter of a day, so we add a day every four years, without which the calendar would gradually get out of sync with the planet. Nothing physically happens. Like, you're still going to have winter when winter happens and summer when summer happens, but the month that you call it is going to be different. If we went many years without leap days, summer would arrive in November. This is as much a history lesson as it is anything else, because it's the history of how we started using calendars and how we started needing to keep track of time. Because from an astronomical point of view, Nothing is happening. So the leap year is a correction on an imperfect calendar, frankly. Alexander Boxer wrote the book, A Scheme of Heaven. Our calendar, the one that we use every day, is this amazing product of multiple civilizations, each building on the other over thousands of years and sharing in this great undertaking of trying to understand time, which you know, is on the one hand both aspirational, but also a very human compromise. We have in-depth coverage of that compromise all week. We only get this chance every four years, so tomorrow we report on birthday celebrations that come February 29th. Birthdays that keep you young. This is NPR News. 
Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. Stick with us this morning as we follow news that the Supreme Court will hear arguments today in two cases that could have a big impact on the future of the Internet. Also, a former FBI informant charged with fabricating a multi-million dollar bribery scheme involving President Joe Biden's family is set to appear in a California federal court today. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, election officials in Michigan are preparing for coordinated efforts to disrupt the 2024 election as the state holds its primary tomorrow. It's 719. WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together, supporting NENS's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming, Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. BUR is such a critical part of my life that I just wanted to make sure that BUR is still here for the next generation and the next generation after that. Your legacy is WBUR's future. Learn more at wbur.org slash legacy. The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Overcast skies gradually clear today and we get a warm-up to highs in the low 50s. Tonight's skies stay clear and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow it grows cloudy again but stays warm. We'll have highs back in the low 50s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering at City Space on Monday, March 4th for a conversation with Maria Hinojosa, award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. From Jones Day, an integrated partnership collaboratively providing legal services for more than a century. 42 offices, five continents, serving clients as one firm worldwide. Learn more at jonesday.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Many leaders of the tech industry have told their stories to Kara Swisher. She chronicled decades of business dealings in Silicon Valley and went into business herself. With another journalist, she organized lucrative conferences to interview tech billionaires. She's written news columns, hosted podcasts, been on TV, and now has written a memoir, Burn Book in which she says she is disillusioned with many of the people she covered. Swisher calls Jeff Bezos venal, describes many others as socially awkward white dudes, and says they warped society with addictive products and misinformation. Yet she still likes many tech leaders and their products. I had great hopes, and I still do. Like, when I think of artificial general intelligence, there's a lot of scary things, but I think of all the great things. I always tend to go toward... What could this do? What could we do for education? I have a real obsession with talent, where talent is. And I always think that one of the things, great thing about tech is you can find talent anywhere. Before, it was trapped in, I don't know, a little girl in Syria that couldn't get education. Well, now she can. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe and she, she can has, be connected to the wider world. She can world. be connected to the wider world. I always believe that connection brings better outcomes. What is done because of the way it's been rolled out is fractured us and isolated us and made us not understand each other as well. You can think of the tech industry as a product of forces of history. The mm -hmm. United States invested Always. in tech in a particular way in Silicon Valley after right. World War II. A lot of things happened in society that led to this moment. Sure. Do you think the billionaires at the top of that pyramid, the beneficiaries of that history, the greatest beneficiaries, understand that they are products of history? No, because it's all about them. They did it. They really do think they know better. And someone's like, you know, Elon did it on his own. I, Elon got a loan from the government. Elon has contracts. Elon was saved a number of times by the government. The Internet was paid for by the American taxpayer. This ingenuity was built on the data provided by people. They essentially steal our data, chomp it up and hand it back to us to eat. You heard Kara Swisher there on a first-name basis with Elon Musk, the head of Tesla, SpaceX, and X. She spoke with Musk for years. It was always an interesting conversation. It was weird. Talk about living in a simulation. He'd talk about... He had an imagination, and it, it was resonant to me a little bit of Steve Jobs, although now he's absolutely not. But he had... Steve was like that. Steve was very interesting to talk to. And he was always spinning you. Everyone was like, he had a yeah, he had a reality distortion field. I'm like, yeah, I was aware. I don't care. It was interesting. Um, it's you write that Steve Jobs would lie to you on stage oh, in front yes, of crowds. Oh, yes, yes, about the phone. <laughs> I'm not working on a phone of well, any kind. Why should then... he tell us the truth about that? I wasn't as offended. Other reporters are like, he lied to us. I'm like, oh, you're kidding. Shockeroo. Like, he, why would he tell us? Like, he's working on a phone. He doesn't want anyone to know. I more object to talking points. Like, they don't want, most of them are smart. Think about it. These are the founders, right? Like, you're talking to, like, Thomas Edison here. And so they're going to be a different group of people, and they have to suspend disbelief in order to do what they're doing. Wait a minute. You know? They almost have to lie to themselves they, as well as everyone That's else. what they're doing most of all. That's the most important thing, I think, for a reporter to recognize. Elon, getting back to Elon, was a really interesting cat. He really was. And you could see him, his brain moving at a million miles an hour when you were talking to him. And about 10% of his personality then was highly juvenile, boob jokes, mm -hmm. penis jokes, memes. 10%. At the time, you, you didn't see a lot of it. And then that 10% started to really infect, and then it started to sour very quickly. And it, it was as he became richer and richer, and more people around him nodded their head and said, yes, that outfit looks great, you know, when it didn't. Like, the emperor has no clothes kind yeah. of thing. And then there was a crisis at Tesla where they almost went out of business, and he took it to this ridiculous, dramatic extreme. And we did an interview. He said if Tesla didn't survive, humanity was doomed. And I was like, huh. That is a very yeah. Elon-centered view of... It, it was. And then I was like, oh, he's living in a video game. This poor guy's living... And he's the main character in the video game. And COVID was a real moment. We did an interview, remote interview, where he he was clearly high on that interview you know it wasn't it was pretty easy to see because he was wandering and mm. his eyes were red and so he started ranting about the government and then said he knew covid would only kill a few people and he had read all the studies and it was like someone who was really going crazy at 3 a.m doing right? his own research as they right say. and he was like kara this is not going to kill millions of people i was like well that's what plagues tend to do and then, you know, the journal finally wrote about the drug issues, the possibility of using 
mm-hmm. quite a lot of ketamine and other things like that. The biographer Robert Caro mm-hmm. has a line about power. Mm. He says it is wrong to think that power corrupts, that power changes a person. Mm-hmm. He believes power reveals I would, who you really are. Yeah, that's interesting. I do, I, I'm not totally sure if I agree with that because I do think money, the immense wealth these people have, makes it impossible for them to get the truth into their head. So having an ability to take disagreement is a very mature thing, and it's a very uh, wise thing, but a lot of people would rather not hear the truth. You cast yourself as someone who was willing to speak truthfully, as you saw it, Mm -hmm. to these guys. Mm -hmm. And you say that some of them have found you to be an asset and some of them cut you off. Yes, that's correct. And it, it often depends. It's a complex thing. I try to tell them the truth as I know it. I don't say I'm right, you're wrong, but often I am kind of right. I'm good at figuring things out. You ever worry that some of them are asking your opinion because they want to kind of use you or co-opt you or win you over? I don't quite know what power I have for what. I don't sell iPhones for them. I just, I, you know, for what Preci- precisely? As I, a I, writer, as a columnist, as in someone who I, opines on tech. Well, as someone no, I who think can... it's okay to decide who you like and you don't. I think journalists try to pretend that they don't have an opinion, and they do. Mm-hmm. We can report and then come to a conclusion. Sure, I, sure. I, I would agree with that. I'm just wondering if you think sometimes these tech guys ask your opinion I, to win you over. I don't know that I, I think you know, a lot of journalists tend to have to be like, this is why it's wrong. I don't mind saying this is why it's right. This is why it works. This is why I like it. I, I don't think I have a lot of power. I really don't. The memoir by Kara Swisher is Burn Book, a tech love story. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, Steve. We asked Elon Musk for comment on the description of his drug use and haven't heard back. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBOR's Morning Edition, the story of a small butterfly that's making a remarkable comeback in Florida. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Global Arts Live's Flamenco Festival in Boston, March 2nd through 13th. Experience the passion, power, and beauty. Tickets at globalartslive.org. And Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Congress is facing a Friday deadline to avert a partial shutdown of the federal government. It's unclear if lawmakers will pass another short-term spending plan or approve something that's longer term. NPR's Eric McDaniel says Republicans in the House remain divided over priorities. Every one of those short-term extension bills, in fact, every major piece of legislation in this Congress, has passed with more House Democratic votes than House Republican ones, even though Republicans have that majority. The full-year government funding bills aren't going to be any different. The chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, says she plans to step down on March 8th, three days after the Super Tuesday primaries. U.S. Central Command says Iranian-backed Houthi rebels fired a missile at an oil tanker in the Gulf of Aden over the weekend. NPR's Marie Andrusevich has more. 
U.S. military officials say the missile hit the water and caused no damage or injuries. Central Command also said that earlier Saturday, U.S. forces shot down two drones over the Southern Red Sea in self-defense, having determined that they were a threat to merchant vessels and U.S. Navy ships in the area. U.S. and British forces attacked more than a dozen Houthi targets in Yemen that same day in an ongoing effort to deter missile attacks on commercial shipping in the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. As the March 5th Super Tuesday primaries get closer, Nikki Haley says she's staying in the race. Massachusetts voters will decide between Haley and former President Donald Trump. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. The choice in the Republican primary mirrors the divide in the state GOP. On one side are people like former Bristol County Sheriff Tom Hodgson, state chair of the Trump campaign. What I'm hearing is overwhelming support for President Trump, and he has a proven record from his first term in office. On the other side, people like Jennifer Lassure, former state GOP chair. She's running the Haley campaign in Massachusetts and said Haley's still in the race because lots of states have yet to vote. We don't anoint kings. We don't have coronations here. And so why just say that Trump is the presumptive nominee? He's not. But he's getting closer, even though Nasur hopes Haley can slow his progress next week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. A class action lawsuit claims Massachusetts state police troopers used their cell phones to unlawfully record people during drug investigations. The lawsuit claims that there are at least 180 instances since 2017 where people were charged with crimes after troopers secretly recorded them without a warrant. Lawyers also claim police never told defendants they had these recordings, which is required by state law. State police officials say they won't comment on pending litigation, but say they're committed to conducting all investigations in accordance with state and federal laws. Some Massachusetts colleges and universities are pushing out the deadline for incoming students to enroll. That deadline is typically May 1st. But the rollout of a new version of the federal student aid form, known as the FAFSA, has been delayed. That means that colleges haven't been able to get students' financial information and offer them aid packages. The Boston Globe reports that schools, including Williams, Emerson, Suffolk, and several UMass universities, have moved their deadlines by up to a month to accommodate the FAFSA issues. It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. In NBA action, the Celtics are on an eight-game winning streak. The Seas are looking to extend that as they host the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow night at 7.30. On the ice, the Boston women's hockey team beat Minnesota 2-0 yesterday. Boston now has back-to-back wins. Next up, Boston visits Montreal on Saturday at 4. We get a warm-up today to the low 50s. Ahead of that this morning, there's a slight chance of some isolated sprinkles. Otherwise, overcast skies will gradually clear and we'll get some sun this afternoon. Skies will be clear tonight as temperatures fall to just below freezing. Then tomorrow it grows cloudy again and we'll have highs back in the low 50s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Workday, 
With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. After everything that's happened since, you might not remember this, but in 2020, when the Michigan presidential race was called for Joe Biden, poll workers counting absentee ballots in downtown Detroit were besieged. Protesters stormed the vote counting center. They banged on windows. They yelled, stop the count. It was among the first places where supporters of then-President Donald Trump tried to thwart the election. Ahead of tomorrow's primary, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson told our co-host Leila Faro that she cannot forget what happened then, and it haunts her now as she tries to secure the polls. What was real at that time was that inside our Detroit County Board, where Detroiters and citizens and poll workers were counting the votes and going through meticulous processes to ensure only valid votes and every valid vote was counted, they were in the room with hundreds of observers from both parties who were already watching. And so you had people from the outside claiming there was no transparency when in reality there was and there were people in there. And so that basic fact in a uh, more ideal world could have been communicated by whoever was telling people to go down to the counting board and try to get in and try to see what was happening. Uh, Yet it wasn't. Uh, We hope now that people will understand the rules and procedures we have around enabling people to Mm -hmm. legally observe and not disrupt the counting process. Uh, And a lot of what we're trying to equip trusted leaders with is that information. What hasn't changed in 2024, and I know we're in primary season, but the anticipated candidates will be the same Mm -hmm. if all continues as we have seen it. And the person that was inciting those voters will be running again. As Secretary of State, as somebody who had people come to your home and call you a traitor and call you a criminal, I mean, what's different about 2024 and how can you try to avert that from happening again? I think first what's different mostly about 2024 at this point is our preparation. Okay. In the um, sort of essence of the fact that we knew there would be coordinated efforts to perhaps disrupt the process, but we never anticipated they would have been at the intensity that we saw, particularly long into the post-election process after lawsuits had been dismissed and several you know, potentially legitimate queries had been rejected as meritless. Yet still, there was attempt after attempt, all the way to our tragedy at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, to still block the legitimate election results from being realized in Washington, D.C. We have now seen, and we have lived for several years, the depths to which people will go to try to reject democracy. And we are more determined than ever to anticipate every potential contingency, every potential arrow that could be thrown our way, including, you know, people showing up outside our homes with guns and be prepared with greater security with, for example, we want to have every poll worker um, with the the ability to quickly summon uh, law enforcement or other protective authority if and when anything arises at a polling location or an election location. We didn't have that in place in 2020 because we really didn't think people would go so far as to try to physically interfere with the process or the counting process. 
We know the adversaries to democracy may be more sophisticated and organized and have more support from foreign adversaries than ever before. We're also much more exhausted <laughs> than we were in yeah. 2020 because we've been fighting these battles in varying levels of intensity for years now with very little reprieve. I mean, this is now a dangerous job. Mm -hmm. What is at stake in this election? Oh, I think not just our democracy, but the very foundation of who we are as Americans is at a precipice in this election. And it's not necessarily only or related to or defined by the names of the candidates on the ballots, but it's really going to be a question of who are we going to be and what are we as Americans going to accept as normal going forward? Are we going to accept leaders abusing their authority to spread lies and misinformation, even knowing that it could result in violence or disruption. And I think and hope that we can reject it and move forward out of this era into a time in which we can disagree without being disagreeable again and, and, and respect each other's voice, votes, position, even if we don't agree with it. Because if we don't choose that path, then the path our country could end up on is one that has far much more division, rancor, noise, violence uh, than any other time in modern American history. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. A company that's constantly attacked for its effect on the climate is striking back. ExxonMobil is taking climate activists to court. NPR's Michael Copley reports. Every year, shareholders in publicly traded companies like ExxonMobil get a say in how the corporations are run. A shareholder can file a proposal, and then all the company's investors get to vote on it at annual meetings. Activists have been using that so-called proxy process to pressure companies to do more to deal with climate change. And that's irritating parts of corporate America. The main theme that companies have been watching for the last several years is the extent to which that activists have hijacked the proxy process and the extent to which the SEC has enabled them to do so. Charles Crane is an executive at the National Association of Manufacturers. It represents industrial companies. Crane says regulators at the Securities and Exchange Commission aren't doing enough to weed out proposals from climate activists that he says are trying to score political points. Here he is again by phone after a problem with the internet. They are not seeking to guide the company through X or Y or Z climate issues so as to increase the value of their investment, which is what the shareholder proposal process is supposed to be. That's where Exxon comes in. It recently filed a lawsuit in Texas against investor groups that submitted a shareholder proposal. They want Exxon to slash the climate pollution from its own business and from customers that buy its fuel and chemicals. Exxon told NPR in an email that it's trying to protect investors from activists that file similar proposals year after year in an attempt to micromanage its business. But Josh Zinner says Exxon's lawsuit threatens the rights of company shareholders. Zinner leads a coalition of investors called the Interfaith Center on Corporate Accountability. This is really about intimidating investors, shareholders of Exxon, from bringing these types of proposals in the future. And Zinner says that because Exxon is so large, what happens there has consequences far beyond the company. The direction that Exxon takes in the energy transition has a big impact on, on how we collectively can move forward to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Interest groups on both sides of the debate say Exxon's lawsuit could unleash a wave of similar cases against activist shareholders. It's happening at a time when global temperatures continue to rise. 
and analysts say most companies aren't on track to meet targets they set to cut their heat trapping emissions. Michael Copley, NPR News. ExxonMobil is one of NPR's sponsors, and we cover them the same as any other company. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, why President Biden's response to the situation in Gaza may mean a loss of support for him in the key swing state of Michigan. Clearing skies and low 50s today. Temperatures fall to the low 30s tonight, then cloudy tomorrow and back to the low 50s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's nationally ranked MBA and master's programs in technology, finance, and analytics. Become an essential force in today's evolving marketplace. WeWork plans to reduce the number of floors it leases at its largest Boston location. The co-working company will be shrinking its lease at the 1 Lincoln Street office tower. Documents obtained by the Boston Business Journal do not say how much space the company will cut. WeWork filed for bankruptcy last year and soon after closed some of its other Boston locations. MIT plans to expand its flagship artificial intelligence conference overseas. The school plans to host MTech Digital on the MIT campus and in London. MIT says it hopes to curate discussions for a European audience with the expansion. Worcester Restaurant Week kicks off today. The twice-yearly event will run through March 9th. More than 30 restaurants around the Worcester area will offer discounted three-course meals. Another restaurant week will kick off in the summer. It's 7.44. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Some butterflies are disappearing. They are falling to factors like pesticide use and loss of habitat. But Carrie Sheridan with WUSF reports, a native Florida butterfly is making a surprising comeback. A small black butterfly with wings just over an inch long eats nectar from a wildflower. You know, the thing about Atellas is they are so gorgeous. Craig Hegel is director of the Botanical Gardens at the University of South Florida in Tampa, which is now home to several of these Atala butterflies. It's a dark butterfly, but it's got this fantastic bright red body that you can't miss and this iridescent blue markings on the wings. Hegel says for years, he's been involved with the Gardening for Wildlife movement, which urges people to choose local native plants instead of flashy tropical ones imported from abroad. The Atel is like maybe the best story because it shows if you put 
something in your yard, you get something in return. And that something begins with a bushy dark green plant called the kunti. It's the host plant where these atala lay their eggs. The caterpillars eat the leaves and attach their chrysalis to them, then turn into butterflies. At the turn of the last century, kunti plants were over-harvested to make flour. The plants disappeared from the Florida landscape by the 1930s, and so did Atala butterflies. Then one day in 1979, a botanist named Roger Hammer was walking around on Virginia Key near Miami when he spotted a wild kunti plant. And there was these red larvae with yellow spots down their sides feeding on the leaves, and I wasn't sure what they were, and being an inquisitive naturalist, I collected some, brought them home, and reared them. When the first one emerged from its chrysalis with those inky black wings and red body. Well, it was one of those oh-my-God moments. <laughs> you know, I double-checked to make sure I was seeing what I was, you know, what I believed I was seeing, and sure enough, that's what they were. They were Atala butterflies. We'll never know how they got there. They're native to Cuba and the Bahamas as well, so they could have been blown in by a big storm, or maybe they were there all along. Hammer raised more and brought some to nearby botanical gardens and to wild areas of Everglades National Park. Fast forward to today, and kunti plants are more common again, in the wild, in yards, and along medians in the roadways. And Atala butterflies are now seen almost all the way up the east and west coasts of Florida. Very excited about that. And so are all the people that come through here and take a look at this. It's, it's pretty amazing. Janet Paisley got some Atala eggs into a preserve in her Bayside neighborhood last year. And now Atalas fly around freely. A few residents walk by and an Atala lands right on a woman's arm. Oh, there he goes. Oh, they're friendly little things. These butterflies never made the endangered species list when it became law in 1973 because they were thought to be gone. Sandy Coy has been researching Italas for 20 years. She says even though they've spread far beyond their traditional range, they're not out of danger. We take away the host plant again, we pave over too much more habitat, we have a devastating hurricane. Any of those factors could wipe this butterfly out again. Not much bigger than a quarter, tiny Italas don't fly far or pollinate any crucial crops, but nature lovers across Florida say just helping this little butterfly exist again is a thrill. For NPR News, I'm Carrie Sheridan in Sarasota. This is NPR News. It's a Monday on WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in a case about social media content moderation that could have a big impact on the future of the Internet. It's 749. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The prime minister of the Palestinian Authority and his government are submitting resignations this morning in a step toward a post-Gaza war overhaul. The impeachment trial against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is expected to move on to the U.S. Senate today. And a former FBI informant charged with lying about the Biden family's business dealings in Ukraine is set to appear in a California federal court today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Skies gradually clear today as temperatures warm up to the low 50s. It stays clear tonight as it falls to the low 30s, then back to the low 50s tomorrow and clouds move back in. It's 35 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. What does David D. Smith intend to do as the new owner of a venerable newspaper? Smith is the executive chairman of Sinclair, which is a chain of TV stations noted for expressing political views on the air. When Smith bought the Baltimore Sun, some journalists expressed outrage. NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick reported for the Sun for a decade and returned to Baltimore to ask questions. I caught up with a half-dozen retired Sun colleagues the other day at their weekly coffee clatch. Among them, Kathy Lally and John Morgan. What do you guys do here on Thursdays? We get together and we talk about the Baltimore Sun. We talk about politics. We talk about everything you can possibly imagine. Today you brought something with you that you wanted to put on the table for discussion. Well, it's the op-ed page for the Baltimore Sun from yesterday's paper. And it kind of confirms some of our worst fears. The Sun first published in 1837. For much of its history, it was one of the nation's most prestigious dailies. Kathy Lally had been posted to Moscow. John Morgan edited state politics. The Sun now has no foreign bureaus and a dwindling number of reporters. There are about 60 journalists now, down from more than 300 in my day. All due to changes in the way people consume and convey news and the rapacious pursuit of profits by a series of -of out-of-state owners. John Morgan says the Sun's newest owner, a local, might prove to be the worst of all. It's fallen in the hands of someone who, by all indications, and I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but it's out to set an agenda, use a newspaper to do that. That someone is David D. Smith. Former Sun reporters point to Smith's record. They say his flagship Baltimore station relentlessly reports on how dangerous Baltimore is, investigating corruption to the exclusion of bigger forces. Nationally, Smith's Sinclair Broadcast Group has taken on a pro-Republican and pro-Donald Trump tilt. A few years back, Sinclair drew notoriety for ordering its stations throughout the country to run an editorial echoing then-President Trump's attacks on the rest of the press, narrated by their local anchors as though it reflected the thoughts of each. Unfortunately, some members of the media use use their their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda to control control exactly exactly what what people people think. think. And this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. Smith declined to speak for this story through Armstrong Williams, his partner in acquiring The Sun. Williams says The Sun will focus more on stories that readers care about. You see more about crime. You've seen more about the mayor and city hall. And Williams says they intend to put more funds into the paper. We're not there to gut 
the operation where they're to enhance it and grow it. Sinclair carries Williams' syndicated talk show on 170 stations. Williams is a conservative commentator and longtime associate of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. In the short time since the acquisition, Williams has become an avatar for The Sun. His column now frequently graces the opinion pages. The Sun's articles draw upon his TV interviews. A lengthy guest editorial hailed Williams with a big picture right above Williams's own column. I asked Williams, what's his role in the Sun's newsroom? Any role that I want, that's the role it will be. I'm with owners. Smith has pointed to investigations on Sinclair and its local station, Fox 45, as a model. Former Fox 45 weather anchor Kirk Clyatt says one memory there stands out for him. We were talking in the afternoon meeting, and I said, I'm looking for two to four overnight. Meaning inches of snow. Clyatt says the station's then-news director wanted more. And he goes, Kirk, let's make it three to five. And just in that statement gives you kind of an idea of the way the mentality was. You take a story, crime, problems at the school, and instead of going from two to four inches, you go from three to five. You amplify the negativity. Sinclair's Fox 45 reported intently on lawsuits that Smith secretly financed against a past mayoral candidate and the city schools, a fact disclosed by a rival, the nonprofit Baltimore Banner. What does all that portend for the sun? Life has gotten a lot more complicated. When a lawsuit against a restaurant owned by Smith's nephew Alex was dismissed, it was front page news. David Smith is a key investor. Former Baltimore Mayor Sheila Dixon makes headlines with a comeback. Records show Smith, his relatives and companies contributed $130,000 toward her campaign in a parallel political action committee. The Sun drove Dixon from office by exposing her criminal behavior. Its reporters later won a Pulitzer Prize for revealing the corruption of a subsequent mayor. Even so, at his first staff meeting, Smith said the Sun needs to do more to investigate local corruption of current officials. He's called another staff meeting for today. David Folkenflik, NPR News, Baltimore. Even by Alaska standards, Anchorage has seen a lot of snow this winter. Record snowfall has overwhelmed snow removal crews, shut down schools, and made roofs collapse. Here is Alaska Public Media's Jeremy Shea. Chad Hansen just used a big forklift to deliver three snowblowers to the flat roof of this one-story office building. The snow is thigh-deep up here and literally weighs tons. It's a blue-sky day, but with the blowers flinging snow into the air, the strip malls nearby look like they're in a snow globe. Oh, this is just fun, isn't it? Yeah. Did that one last night, now this one today. Hansen owns General Roofing Company. This scruffy crew has been busy since November, and now they're short a few guys. Hansen says they've been getting worn out. There's a snow scoop right there, man. Jump right on in. Uh, 30 bucks gonna, an hour, I'll get you up here. I get, well, oh, 30 bucks an hour, maybe. We get a side gig, maybe. Hey, you know, there's a lot of it to go around right now, you know? Yeah. At the end of January, Anchorage already had more than 100 inches of snow for the season, about twice the average up to that point. It was the earliest the city of about 290,000 has ever crossed that mark. Last winter was also unusually snowy, and since then at least 19 roofs have collapsed. One of them killed a woman at her CrossFit gym at about this time last winter. Daniel King is a city engineer who's been investigating the roof failures. So it's an evolving situation where we're trying to move as quickly as the situation is growing, as the danger grows. His office recently mailed out more than 7,000 notices to property owners and their tenants to warn them that their roofs might have the same kind of supports they've been seeing fail. 
Michelle Parton is visiting Anchorage in part because of the snow. She's checking out Snowzilla, a gigantic two-story snowman, a local built in his yard on a suburban street. She's from Redmond, Washington, where... It's been so warm that we don't really feel like we had a winter. And so to come up here and to see all your snow and your mountains is so amazing. Even though February hasn't been very snowy, there are still snow berms along roads and sidewalks all over town that are taller than most people. And there's more snow in the forecast. For NPR News, I'm Jeremy Shea in Anchorage. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Low 50s today under clearing skies. Low 30s tonight, then back to the low 50s tomorrow and the clouds return. It's 36 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR supporters include Music Worcester presenting Orchestre Metropolitain de Montréal, led by Yannick Nézé-Séguin, Mechanics Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. Tickets at musicworcester.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will invade the southern Gaza city of Rafah even if a ceasefire and hostage release deal is reached. It's Monday, February 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden's stance on the situation in Gaza may hurt his showing in Michigan's Democratic primary tomorrow, with some Arab American voters pledging not to support him. The people who are dying, these are our family members and our friends, people who we know directly. And early voting is underway in Massachusetts ahead of the Super Tuesday presidential primary. And despite Donald Trump's lead, local supporters of Nikki Haley say the race is far from over. We don't anoint kings. We don't have coronations here. And so why just say that Trump is the presumptive nominee? He's not. Clearing skies and low 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Talks continue in Qatar about a potential pause in fighting in Gaza and a hostage release by Hamas. NPR's Daniel Estrin tells us Israeli leaders say even if there's a pause in fighting, Israel will press forward with its offensive in southern Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is still insisting that Israel's next military objective is Rafah. And as Israeli troops have been sweeping from north Gaza to central Gaza to south Gaza, this is the last part of Gaza, where Israeli troops have not yet entered. It's where Israel says most of the remaining Hamas battalions are left. NPR's Daniel Estrin reporting. Ukraine's president says 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed during the two years that Russia has waged war on his country. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv. This is the first time Ukraine has gone public with casualties, although Western officials say the number is much higher. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told reporters over the weekend that the number of casualties has been inflated by the Kremlin. U.S. officials, however, say 70,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed, more than twice the number cited by Zelensky. He did not reveal the number of wounded or missing for security reasons. And he said 2024 will be decisive for the war. Whether we win or lose depends on our Western partners, Zelensky said. With weapons, we'll be strong and we won't lose. Ukraine is rationing ammunition on the battlefield as U.S. aid remains stalled in Congress. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. In the U.S., the death of a teenager following a fight in a high school bathroom in Oklahoma is drawing national attention. For member station KWGS in Tulsa, Max Bryan reports the student identified as non-binary. Hundreds of community members lit candles at Redbud Festival Park in Owasso, Oklahoma to remember the life of Nex Benedict. The 16-year-old died this month after a reported fight in a bathroom at the local high school, although police say the cause of death is not clear. Benedict told police that girls were picking on them for how they dressed leading up to the fight. Owasso High School parent Anna Richardson organized the vigil. She told the crowd that parents are responsible for instilling love or hatred. We need to start those conversations and our actions with love. And we need to start listening to our children. Benedict's death has drawn the attention of Vice President Kamala Harris. The vice president said on social media that she and President Biden stand with LGBTQ youth. For NPR News, I'm Max Bryan in Tulsa. The chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, plans to step down. In a statement, she says she'll leave March 8th to allow a new chair to be selected. McDaniel had said previously she would leave the RNC after the South Carolina primary. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Early voting is underway in Massachusetts ahead of the Super Tuesday presidential primary. Massachusetts is one of 15 states that holds its primary on March 5th. Secretary of State William Galvin's office reports that over 700,000 voters have applied to vote by mail and more than 200,000 ballots have already been cast. Unaffiliated voters can choose to cast a ballot in the Democratic, Republican, or Libertarian primary. People enrolled in a political party may only vote in their own party's primary. Early voting ends March 1st. A new immigration court is set to open in Chelmsford this spring. State officials say they plan to open the court in April. They say it should help with a backlog of immigration cases in the state. But some immigration advocates tell the Boston Globe there are better ways to address the issue. They say those include the federal government stepping in to provide more relief to immigrants and arresting fewer people at the U.S. southern border. State health officials say a study looking at cancer rates and their link to chemicals from former factories in western Massachusetts may finally wrap up this year. The Department of Public Health launched the study of five communities in the Berkshires in 2021 with plans to finish it this past fall. Nancy Cohn reports some people in the region are anxious to learn what it finds. The study was requested by officials in Pittsfield, where a now-closed General Electric plant on the Housatonic River used PCBs for decades. PCBs can cause cancer. Jane Wynn, director of Berkshire Environmental Action Team, wants to know if there are elevated cancer rates. In the Berkshires specifically that might relate to PCBs, so 
Pittsfield near the old GE site, and then going down the river as well. The study will look at incidents of 10 types of cancer, along with bladder cancer in Pittsfield, home to two PCB disposal sites. A third site is planned in Lee as part of the EPA cleanup of the river. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. Attorney General Andrea Campbell and the owner of the former Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant in Plymouth have reached a six-figure settlement over asbestos mismanagement allegations. The Attorney General's civil complaint alleged that the company improperly handled, stored, shipped, and disposed of debris that contained asbestos. The plant closed down in 2019. A Holtec spokesperson said the company is focused on a safe decommissioning of the station. It's 8.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's College of Arts and Sciences, presenting the acclaimed writer David Gran, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Sci Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. It was a good weekend for Boston in sports. On the ice, Boston's professional women's hockey team beat Minnesota 2-0 yesterday. Meanwhile, the Celtics beat New York over the weekend and now look to extend their winning streak to nine as they host the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow night at 7.30. There's a slight chance of some sprinkles or snow flurries this morning. Then cloudy skies gradually clear and we'll have highs in the low 50s. Tonight, clear skies and lows around freezing. Tomorrow, clouds move back in and we'll have highs back in the low 50s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falden. Today, I'm taking you to Michigan, a key swing state that holds a presidential primary tomorrow. And right now, there is an effort for a protest vote against president and candidate Biden. We start in Dearborn. The mayor, Abdullah Hamoud, walks us through a shopping district on the west side of the city, where restaurants offer up everything from Detroit-style pizza to shawarma and Yemeni coffee. Yeah, yeah, we have. We're the food capital. And I like to say now we're also the coffee capital. You know, coffee originated in Yemen. You don't find that anywhere else, that the ones who founded coffee are now the ones serving it up. Nice. As the storefronts suggest, Dearborn is home to one of the largest Arab populations in the country. And right now, the city is in deep pain because of Gaza. The people who are dying, these are our family members and our friends. People who we know directly. You know, when I have a resident coming to my council meeting speaking to the fact that he lost 80 family members, that's personal for all of us, because in this city, everybody is family. That's what I mean by we're in pain. And pain in, in that sense, but also pain due to betrayal. Mm. Betrayal by this president, betrayal by the administration, and betrayal by all those that are uplifting the most right-wing government in Israel's history and continually supporting this genocide. It's being debated on the world stage if Israel's war on Hamas after the October 7th attack in Israel constitutes a genocide. The International Court of Justice found that it's plausible, but hasn't made a final determination on whether Israel has committed genocidal acts in Gaza. It's something the Israeli and the U.S. governments say isn't happening, but that's how many residents of Dearborn say they see it, and they want to send a message with their vote in the primary on Tuesday that... 
President Biden could lose Michigan and therefore maybe the country when he runs for re-election. You can't look to the landmark legislation that President Biden has been able to enact and think that it's not outweighed by the genocide that he is aiding, abetting, supporting and defending. That to me, the scales of justice won't allow it. Hamoud is a committed Democrat and was a Biden supporter until the war in Gaza. He's one of more than 40 elected Democrats in the state who plans to vote uncommitted on primary day and is encouraging other Democrats and independents to do the same. Is there anything that this president could do that would change your current position? There's always time to do the right thing. But this has to happen outside of the context of does that mean it moves the needle for where you're going to support in November? Mm. Because I refuse to believe that Palestinian lives only are important in the context of polls and outcomes of elections. Dignify us, humanize Palestinian lives, Arab lives, and Muslim lives. Mm. What do you say to people who say, specifically to Arab American voters and American Muslims, the other candidate is much worse for you. And if that person gets elected, it's going to be much tougher for your communities. Why would you even question? this candidate. For folks who say that, it's like, what do I tell that resident that lost 80 loved ones? What is worse? I think people fail to explain that. They can't contextualize that for us. What is worse? I don't think there is a worse. Now, this effort to call on voters to choose uncommitted on the ballot come Tuesday is called Listen to Michigan, and it bills itself as a multi-faith, multi-racial, anti-war movement. It's being led by Arab Americans in the state, but isn't only resonating with them. Among its supporters is Andy Levin, a former U.S. congressman, a progressive labor activist, and a self-described Biden ally. Welcome. Hello. Hi. We meet Levin outside his synagogue in Ferndale, some 16 miles away from Dearborn, where he takes me to see a banner that hangs on the front of the building. Lots of Muslims who aren't Arab American and lots of people of color and lots of young people and lots of progressives are freaking out about Gaza. And so this banner is something that our synagogue and, and this church that you know hosts us, we decided to do together. So it says Jews and Christians praying for ceasefire now in Hebrew and in English. Thank you. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Good to see you. Nice seeing you too. He takes us inside the cozy space where his synagogue meets and we sit down to chat. You called uncommitted actually good for Biden. I think it's much better for the president if people from the Arab American community, the Muslim community, the African American community, young voters, all the people who are upset, come out and vote uncommitted and they say to Joe Biden, I'm really mad at you. I'm voting through my tears. I'm shouting at you. Please stop the carnage. To me, getting a big uncommitted vote sends him a message that otherwise he wouldn't get. And the biggest danger for the president in his reelection is not getting that message. I don't see how you win the presidency without winning Michigan. Mm. I don't think he can win Michigan unless he changes course. If he changes course tomorrow, does it change those voters come November? I don't think we get all of them. But there's a big difference between saying, well, people are mad, but when it comes down to it in November, the choice between Biden and Trump is so stark, they will vote for Biden. There's a big difference between saying that and saying, I'm going to really 
end this carnage and lead the way to peace. I think many, many people who are upset will say, wow, he's trying and this is a good thing. Hello, uh, this is Andrew, and I'm with the uh, Michigan Uncommitted Movement, and we want to ceasefire in Gaza now. Volunteers with the campaign are phone banking, knocking on doors. My name's Chris. This is Ali. Hi. We're with the Uncommitted campaign. We're trying to get folks And this to weekend, they held get-out-the-vote rallies urging people to go to the polls. I need you to commit to packing your car. If you are driving to the polls and you have four MCCs or seven MCCs if you drive a van, pack your car and take people with you to vote Biden's been balancing his approach to Israel, a U.S. ally, with the growing calls from American Democratic voters for the war to stop. According to polls, the majority are in favor of a ceasefire. Habas Alawiya, a progressive Democratic strategist and one of the organizers of Listen to Michigan, was in a recent meeting with Biden officials who came to Michigan to hear from Arab Americans. I looked every one of them in the eye and I asked, have you advised President Biden to call for a ceasefire? They couldn't give me the answer. So I went to the next person down the line. Have you advised President Biden to call for a ceasefire? The people around the president need to knock some sense into him, shake some sense into him, because this isn't a theoretical thing. This is a child who's out of food and not just one, not just two, but over 13,000 killed using our taxpayer dollars. What's success look like when you think about Tuesday? for the uncommitted campaign? What is the number you want to get to for that message to be sent? Yeah, this anti-war movement is mobilizing and leaning into our power and saying that our relationships with one another are stronger than the other side's funding for war. Mm-hmm. The vote count will matter on Tuesday, but what matters more to me is generating pressure on Biden. Part of how we build that power will be how strong our hand is as people who are against war. So I think the more votes we have, the stronger our hand will be to play the next move. And so one of the things that we are eyeing is the last time Donald Trump won here was in 2016. He won by about 10,000 votes. And so we want to have at least that many votes. We're going to make our move on February 27th, and we're going to continue organizing after February 27th. For Alawiya, being a child under bombardment is something he understands. He was 15 during the Israel-Hezbollah war in southern Lebanon in 2006. I'm thinking about the moment in the war when, when our cell phone service was out, when the electricity was out, when we were counting how much food we had and, and, and trying to figure out how much longer it would last. I'm thinking about that desperation of being on the phone with my parents and consoling them and telling them it's going to be okay when I was certain that I was going to die. I had accepted that I would be among those who are dead. That is a preventable feeling. President Biden can prevent that. For thousands more children right now, he can prevent that. This is urgent. So many of us are operating not just from a place of political expediency. We're operating from a place of life and death. And we're telling you this is what you need to do to save lives. It's not theoretical for us. If you count us in your big tent Democratic Party, then you have to listen to us when we're telling you that this is not theoretical for us. This is life or death. A statement from the Biden campaign said the president is both working hard to earn every vote in Michigan and tirelessly to create a just, lasting peace in the Middle East. The U.S. is trying to broker a hostage exchange deal that would get a six-week pause in the fighting. But many people in Dearborn and the larger Detroit metro area say they're looking at actions of the administration, including the continued military aid to Israel and the fact that the U.S. has vetoed U.N. resolutions calling for a ceasefire three times. 
killing innocent people is not the answer to anything ever. Unless he calls for a ceasefire, I don't think that anyone would vote for him. The only thing Biden would have going for him is he dangles loan forgiveness in our faces and thinks that that will persuade our decision into voting for him, but I don't think that's enough. I am going to not vote uh, at the top of the ticket. And why are you leaving? Palestine. Oh. Period. That's it. That's Anam Khan, Huma Shazad, and Brian McCluskey. They all spoke to us in Dearborn. All three vote Democrat. All three say they are voting uncommitted for the Democratic presidential candidate come Tuesday. And the mayor of this city, Abdullah Hamoud, is now at the center of the most pressing geopolitical battle of this moment. I ran on the prospect of making sure your garbage was picked up on time. Uh, I never imagined myself in a room with senior officials leading conversations on foreign policy. But when that foreign policy directly impacts your constituents, I think it's irresponsible if you walk away. In Michigan, there are an estimated 200,000 registered Muslim voters and some 300,000 people who claim Middle Eastern and North African ancestry. We're not sizable enough to make a candidate win, but we're sizable enough to make a candidate lose. Tuesday's primary will be a litmus test that may tell Biden if he has a Michigan problem. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. We're following news this morning that Human Rights Watch says Israel has failed to comply with the United Nations order to allow aid into Gaza. Also, the Palestinian prime minister says his government is resigning in a move that could open the door to U.S.-backed reforms of the Palestinian Authority. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, pressure is increasing on House Speaker Mike Johnson to come up with a solution ahead of another government budget deadline for Congress on Friday. It's 819. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Thirst. Two Irish immigrants search for a place to call home in this drama by Ronan Noon. Now through March 17th, lyricstage.com. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Overcast skies gradually clear, and we get a warm-up to highs in the low 50s today. Tonight's skies stay clear and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow it grows cloudy again but stays warm. We'll have highs back in the low 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Ahead at 845 on 90.9 WBUR, Nikki Haley is vowing to compete in Massachusetts on Super Tuesday. Anthony Brooks breaks down Haley's prospects and Trump's big advantage among Bay State Republicans. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. 
From EBSCO, offering EBSCO Learning, committed to enabling organizations and people seeking to advance their lives and careers to improve their skills and knowledge. Learn more at ebscolearning.com. From Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Today, the Supreme Court hears a case that could help define the future of the Internet. Legal experts say it is one of the most important First Amendment cases in a generation. The question is whether states like Florida and Texas can force social media platforms to carry content they find objectionable or hateful. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports. After the Capitol riot in early 2021, some big social media sites booted former President Donald Trump from their platforms, fearing his posts could provoke more unrest. Republicans in two states took action. Freedom of speech is under attack in Texas. That's Texas Governor Greg Abbott. There is a dangerous movement by some social media companies to silence conservative ideas and values. This is wrong, and we will not allow it in Texas. Abbott signed a law that prevents social media companies from banning users based on their political viewpoints. The Texas law paves the way for people who are restricted to sue to get back onto those sites. A separate law in Florida prevents the social media platforms from rapidly changing their terms of service and requires them to provide an individual explanation to users about why their posts have been edited or removed. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis aired his concerns. If they engage in wrong think or they go to the wrong political event, then all of a sudden they can act in concert and just take take you off. You need to have protection against that. The laws in Florida and Texas apply to the biggest sites, companies that include Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Matt Shears is president of the Computer and Communications Industry Association, a big trade group for those sites that sued over the state laws. There is nothing more Orwellian than the government trying to dictate what viewpoints are distributed in the name of free expression. That's what's at issue in this case. Longstanding Supreme Court precedent says state and federal governments cannot force people or businesses to speak, he says. Scheer says the laws in Florida and Texas violate that principle, and they interfere with how the sites operate. It is necessary to have guidelines, terms of use, to ensure that a community isn't polluted. And that's everything from posting dog pictures in the cat forum to barbecue in the vegan forum to far more serious things like trying to groom children in a children's site. In court papers, lawyers for Texas and Florida say the social media platforms are discriminating against conservative and religious views. John Whitehead runs the Rutherford Institute, a conservative-leaning nonprofit group. Whitehead says the big social media sites have become the center of people's lives, and they should not be engaging in any censorship. It's out there to make people think. In other words, you can disagree. If someone puts something foolish on, let's say, Facebook, People should respond immediately and start a debate. Debating is the key, not eliminating. Other allies of Texas and Florida argue the sites are merely hosting content, not making editorial judgments that deserve lots of First Amendment protection. 
Carl Zabo is general counsel of NetChoice, another big trade group for social media platforms that's involved in these lawsuits. These cases are going to define the future of the Internet. At stake, he says, is who controls what people hear, say, and read online. Everyone, left, right, or center, should oppose government control of speech. Because as much as it may be your person in the White House today, we know that that will not be forever. And that's why the First Amendment is so important and so paramount. The justices will have to decide between radically different conceptions of what social media is. Are these platforms more like old-time phone companies, basically open to everyone without filtering, or more like bookstores or newspapers, places that edit and curate information, that get the highest level of First Amendment protection? And that could shape the future of social media. Again, Carl Zabo. There is a U.S. Supreme Court decision called Miami Herald v. Tornillo, where the state of Florida tried to force the Miami Herald to carry op-eds they didn't want to carry. And a nearly unanimous Supreme Court said, sorry, Florida, you can't force the Miami Herald to carry an op-ed they don't want to carry. He says that analysis from 1974 is just like today, when Florida is trying to make the platforms print every single letter to the editor. Users don't want that, he says, and neither do advertisers. The two trade associations, NetChoice and CCIA, are backed by groups across the political spectrum, from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Americans for Prosperity, which is linked to the Koch brothers, to the American Civil Liberties Union. A bipartisan group of national security experts weighed in, too. Rupa Bhattacharya is a former Justice Department lawyer who now works at Georgetown University Law Center. Social media content moderation plays a really important role in keeping some of the worst of the hate and the violence off of the Internet. She says homegrown extremists like the Proud Boys and foreign groups like the Islamic State have deployed social media to attract converts and broadcast violence. The Christchurch shooter in New Zealand live-streamed his activities in an effort to inspire others to follow his example. And that has real-world consequences. She says social media platforms should face common-sense regulations, including consumer protection and anti-fraud laws. And she says the current content moderation policies of some of the big sites have flaws. But Potacharia adds, They're not perfect, and they don't always do the best job, but they are better than nothing. And she says nothing, no content moderation at all, is what will happen if the Supreme Court upholds the sweeping laws in Texas and Florida. Volunteer moderators of a Reddit site devoted to law in the Supreme Court filed their own brief in the case to deliver a very particular message. The court papers cited hateful speech and threats against the justices. Moderators say they delete those things now, but under the state laws, they might face lawsuits for removing trolls who drown out their chats with vulgar or racist posts. The state laws are not about protecting speech, the moderators say. In Instead, they're commandeering someone else's microphone to spread a message. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. 
Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. As early voting starts in Massachusetts ahead of the Super Tuesday primary, WBUR's Anthony Brooks tells us why local supporters of Nikki Haley say the race for the Republican presidential nomination isn't over. It's 8.29. Listeners have the chance to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and Community Advisory Board. Visit WBUR.org slash open meetings if you'd like to find out more. That's WBUR.org slash open meetings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at LizLinder.com and H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Maestro Raphael Pichon leads a fresh take on Beethoven's Ninth, March 15th and 16th at Symphony Hall, HandelandHaydn.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The chairwoman of the Republican National Committee says she plans to step down next week, shortly after the Super Tuesday primaries. NPR's Sarah McCammon says Donald Trump is putting pressure on the party to wrap up the GOP presidential primary process, having won each GOP contest he's entered. In a statement released by the RNC, Ronna McDaniel calls serving as chairwoman an honor and privilege and says she will step down on March 8th, quote, to allow our nominee to select a chair of their choosing. That move will come just days after Super Tuesday on March 5th, when former President Trump appears poised to sweep several more state nominating contests. McDaniel has led the RNC since 2017 and was re-elected last year, but she's faced increasing attacks from far-right leaders within the party, some of whom have criticized the current RNC leadership as ineffective. Trump recently announced his endorsement of a slate of new candidates for top positions at the RNC, including his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, for co-chair. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Congressional leaders are scheduled to be at the White House this week to discuss additional U.S. military aid to Ukraine. President Biden wants the House to approve a $95 billion foreign aid package passed by the Senate. It includes more than $60 billion for Ukraine. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Ed Markey is calling on Congress to extend a program that provides subsidies for broadband Internet service to low-income residents. The $14 billion initiative was part of the 2021 infrastructure bill. It expires at the end of April. Markey says the subsidies provide reliable Internet service, which he calls more crucial than ever. The Internet is increasingly the location of job applications, doctor's appointments, government services, communications with our loved ones. Markey says more than 300,000 Massachusetts residents have taken advantage of the program. A group of Harvard Jewish alumni say they're auditing courses at the school to root out what they call pervasive anti-Semitism. According to internal communications reviewed by the Boston Globe, members of the group claim there are entire courses at Harvard that are based on, quote, anti-Semitic lies. The Globe reports the group's efforts also include critiques of the university's diversity and inclusion policies and lobbying aimed at top administrators. Boston is expanding its public art project to the public schools. The city is asking for artists to submit by Wednesday proposals for murals or mosaics on walls of school buildings. Karen Goodfellow is director of public art for the mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. She says students, their parents, and teachers will be able to appreciate the new art. 
in Boston, we've had a real explosion of public art, and we're really excited for that to be happening with schools and with artists who really believe in engagement and talking to kids and talking to families. Once the commissions are awarded, artists, artists will start work this summer. The goal is to have the public art completed by fall when the new school year begins. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Boston's Erin Frankel made 41 saves to secure her first shutout of the season in professional women's hockey. Boston beat Minnesota 2-0 on the road yesterday. In NHL action, the Bruins are in Seattle to play the Kraken tonight at 10. In NBA action, the Celtics host the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow night at 7.30. We get a warm-up today to the low 50s. Ahead of that this morning, there's a slight chance of some isolated sprinkles. Otherwise, overcast skies will gradually clear and we'll get some sun this afternoon. Skies will be clear tonight as temperatures fall to just below freezing. Then tomorrow it grows cloudy again and we'll have highs back in the low 50s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Congress is supposed to pass laws to fund the government every year, and that's supposed to happen by the end of September. The end of September? Well, it's now February, late February, and still nothing. They keep pushing back the deadline to avoid calamity. Lawmakers have another self-imposed shutdown deadline on Friday, which is likely to result in one of two things. A shutdown or another continuation of the spending plans authorized a very long time ago back in 2022. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel is here to tell us more about this again. Good morning. Good morning again. So, you know, you've been covering Congress since October, and I already feel like we've talked about this three or four times, but it keeps happening. Why is that? This is actually so important for people to understand. And the answer is kind of simple, but kind of sad. Congress is broken, right? Passing funding legislation is the core responsibility of the legislative branch. We're sitting here in the richest country in the world. You've probably heard this called the power of the purse. And instead of coming together to figure out how the United States should best use the money it collects from citizens and taxpayers, it's relied on decisions made back in 2022 just to keep the lights on. But the world is different now, right? Inflation has limited how far dollars go. It prevents every single part of the government, from the Department of Housing and Urban Development to the Department of Education, from doing long-term planning with the key context of knowing how much money they'll have to devote to their programs. This is the most essential part of Congress's job. So why haven't lawmakers done it? I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's true that House Republicans have a very narrow majority. That means in order to pass anything with just Republican votes, which is typical when you've got the gavel, when you've got the power, they have to keep everyone in a very divided party on the same page. But I actually think that's just sort of half the story. The fuller answer here is about systems. House Republicans changed the rules at the beginning of this Congress last January. So in practice, it only takes three or four people out of more than 200 to fire their boss, Speaker Mike Johnson. 
that working with Democrats to keep the government open will upset more than just those three or four people because there's a faction of the Republican Party that sees anything less than sort of passing their ultimate conservative priorities as a failure, who see bipartisan legislating as a failure. But Congress right now is under bipartisan control. The Democrats have power in the Senate, and those two stances are sort of irreconcilable. Is there a path out of that? I'll give you a short-term answer and a longer-term answer. Lawmakers will meet with the White House on Tuesday, but they've also got other stuff to tackle. Ukraine and Israel aid, a possible Biden impeachment, even after a central witness was just charged by prosecutors who say he was lying about some of the things he told them. The Senate also has to deal with the impeachment of Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. But on funding, every one of these short-term extension bills we've been talking about, in fact, every major piece of legislation in the 118th Congress, has passed with more House Democratic votes than House Republican votes, even though Republicans are in the majority. These full-year government funding bills, for all the reasons we've talked about, won't be any different. And as far as I can tell, the only way I can see to move forward is for Speaker Johnson to put the most conservative plan that can still get Democratic votes up for a vote on the House floor, even if that means risking his job, which it definitely does. The long-term answer here is this is kind of how the House of Representatives is designed to work right now. There are just 20 or so of the more than 400 seats that have competitive races because of how maps are drawn and how party primaries work. Really encouraging compromise would probably take changes to those systems. That is NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Eric, thank you. Thank you. Let's talk now about the politics of Israel, which holds its first municipal elections since the October 7th Hamas attacks and the counteroffensive in Gaza. The Israeli electorate includes many people who identify as Arab Israeli or Israeli Arab or as Palestinian citizens of Israel. They make up 20% of Israel's population, and in the city of Tel Aviv, many are supporting a party that includes Jewish allies. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. Amir Badran campaigns on the streets of central Tel Aviv in fluent Hebrew and Arabic. He's one of only two Palestinian members of the Tel Aviv Jaffa Municipal Council, and he's seeking a second term. He's also running for mayor, while he's unlikely to win the top job, he says it's symbolically important to run because he's the first ever Arab candidate. Badran says campaigning during this war is tough. In difficult times, you know, people do not want to see changes. We usually regroup ourselves, we close ourselves into our, our communities and we are not open to others. Badran is a member of a coalition called Kulanu Hayir, which translates roughly as we are the city. He says Arab-Jewish unity is more important than ever. Creating this bonds between Jewish and Arabs, saying that there is hope for us, there is a different uh, future for us, which is not only war, but it's peace and together and to understand each other's narrative and to accept each other. Badran has proof it can work. The day after last October's Hamas attacks, his mixed neighborhood in Jaffa came together on WhatsApp and in volunteer groups, Jews and Palestinians helping to protect each other and their homes and places of worship. Riots and revenge attacks were averted. He's building on that success. <laughs> Campaign volunteer Lior Fogel has just been turned away by a voter she's approached. She says people are hurting, but if anyone can reach them, it's Amir Badran. The thing he said about peace, about equality, about partnership, people can hear it right now. But 
he makes it that more people can hear it, and he's, uh, I think he can do it. Many voters in Tel Aviv, a traditionally leftist city, say they feel powerless as Israel's right-wing government wages war in Gaza. Yael Betterpoker says being able to express her voice on local issues at least makes her feel she has some control. I think rent control is one of the biggest issues for everyone, not just like students or young people like me, also families can't afford to live here anymore. The next campaign event is a bar crawl on a hip Tel Aviv pedestrian street lined with restaurants. 38-year-old Itamir Avneri is Jewish and number two on the party list. He says a joint Jewish-Arab party gives some people hope, but not everyone. But, I must admit, some people, of course, are, you know, reluctant when they hear that we are Jewish and Arab and that Amir, who's a Palestinian, he's the head of our list, so... Well-known former Knesset member Dov Hanin is lending his star power to the campaign. He says this party is building a coalition a whole new way by bringing young progressives together with economically depressed Jews and Arabs who would normally not unite. I think it is essential, actually. You know, we should overcome this terrifying division between Jews and Arabs inside Israel. Hanin says this party is swimming against the tide of extreme nationalism and racism, but he says Jewish-Arab partnership is the only way for Israel's future. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the increase in so-called news deserts and asks if voters in those locations have enough reliable local information to help them make decisions at the polls in this election year. Clearing skies in low 50s today. Temperatures fall to the low 30s tonight, then cloudy tomorrow and back in the low 50s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. Cell provider AT&T says it'll give affected customers $5 to make up for an outage last week. Thursday's outage left many people in Massachusetts and around the nation without service for hours. The company says customers will see the $5 credit on their account within two billing cycles. AT&T says the outage was from a coding error and not a cyber attack. Developers in Worcester are cutting the number of affordable housing units in a new development. A proposed building on Mason Street was set to be fully comprised of affordable units. Now only 15 percent will be designated as affordable. Developers have not told the Worcester Business Journal why they're making the change. A new report finds Clinton, Hopkinton and Franklin are the safest towns in Massachusetts. A report from the Property Club ranks them as the top three for their low crime rates and small populations. Lexington, Andover, and Newton also made it on the top ten list. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Explow, part magic. Part Summer Enrichment Program for curious kids and teens, 
For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is vowing to compete in Super Tuesday next week when 15 states hold primaries, including Massachusetts. That's despite losing Saturday's primary to former President Donald Trump in her home state of South Carolina. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports on Haley's prospects and Trump's big advantage among Bay State Republicans. Trump now owns the Republican Party and is also the dominant force among Massachusetts Republicans who are expected to hand him a victory next Tuesday. But Jennifer Nassour insists this race is not over. Nassour is the former chair of the Massachusetts GOP and heading up Nikki Haley's campaign in the state. This isn't Trump's party. This is the Republican Party of Massachusetts. And in a democracy, you need to have people running against each other and there needs to be some opposition. Haley has now lost four nominating contests in a row, including Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. And according to a recent Suffolk University poll, among likely Republican primary voters in Massachusetts, Trump leads by 17 points. What I'm hearing is overwhelming support for President Trump. And not only that, I'm hearing it from Democrats. Tom Hodgson is the former sheriff of Bristol County and the chair of the Trump campaign in Massachusetts. I had a guy come up to me the other day and tell me, every one of my family have been Democrats all our lives, but you know what? Every one of us is voting for President Trump. Maybe so, but statewide, Trump is deeply unpopular. In the last two general elections, he lost Massachusetts to Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden by two-to-one margins. Meanwhile, the former president remains entangled in numerous legal challenges, facing 91 criminal indictments across four federal and state cases. And earlier this month, a New York judge fined him $450 million for legal fraud. Jennifer Nassour says that hardly sets him up for victory in November. He used $50 million of his campaign funds to pay for his legal fees. He talked about Joe Biden running a campaign from his basement in 2020. Donald Trump is running a campaign from a courtroom in 2024. Nassour says Trump is still a long way from the 1,215 delegates needed to win the nomination. And even if he wins in Massachusetts, Haley could still do well enough to win delegates. Here's Amy Carnevale, the chair of the state Republican Party. Massachusetts is an important state for Nikki Haley to compete in because if Donald Trump is kept to under 50 percent of the electoral vote, then our delegates will be awarded on a proportional basis. There's another way Massachusetts could help Haley. Along with most of the other Super Tuesday states, Massachusetts allows unaffiliated voters, the state's largest block of voters, to participate in its primary. Tatish Antetta, a political scientist and director of the UMass poll, says that offers Haley a chance to appeal to voters who oppose or who have grown tired of the chaos surrounding Trump. Among independents, I think Haley is fashioning herself as a more moderate option. So that's why I think she's in. And anything can happen between now and the summer when the Republican Party has to make a decision about who, in fact, is going to be the nominee. As Haley fights a rear guard action, she's become increasingly blunt in her criticism of Trump. She calls him toxic and unhinged and a drag on the party's chances of winning in November, while accusing many Republicans of surrendering to him. They know what a disaster he's been and will continue to be for our party. They're just too afraid to say it out loud. Well, I'm not afraid to say the hard truths out loud. I feel no need to kiss the ring. 
The choice in the Massachusetts Republican primary, Trump or Haley, represents the divide in the state's own GOP. On one side are people like Tom Hodgson, who embrace Trump and everything he stands for. He has a proven record from his first term in office. And we all know that our country is in dire straits with regards to everything from the economy to millions pouring in over our border. And the American people can see through this. And on the other side, Republicans like Jennifer Nassour, who wants to pull the party she used to lead back from its allegiance to Trump. We don't anoint kings. We don't have coronations here. And so why just say that Trump is the presumptive nominee? He's not. But he's getting closer even as some Massachusetts Republicans hope to slow his progress next week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with a look at how Christian groups influence the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling that frozen embryos have the legal status of children and how that decision has sparked a debate about the role of theology in U.S. lawmaking. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the exhibition Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away. An exhibition featuring over 700 original artifacts from the Holocaust opens March 15th in Boston. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Israeli officials say they have an evacuation plan ahead of a possible invasion in the southern city of Rafah in Gaza. Hungary's parliament has sent a vote today on ratifying Sweden's bid to join NATO. And the chair of the Republican National Committee says she plans to step down next week after seven years in that position. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Skies gradually clear today as temperatures warm up to the low 50s. It stays clear tonight as temperatures fall to the low 30s, then back to the low 50s tomorrow and clouds move back in. It's 38 degrees in Boston. They say all politics is local. So where's the local news coverage this election year? I'm David Brancaccio. I've been traveling to what are called news deserts in Super Tuesday states to hear about the business models that are failing or informing voters as they make their choices on Tuesday. We begin this week's Democracy in the Desert coverage in Val Verde County, Texas, where Mexico is just across the river. Breakfast in one of the 204 counties in America researchers have labeled a news desert. Here at Skillets in the county seat of Del Rio, There are biscuits smothered in chili. And surprise for a local news desert, one diner reading what turns out to be a daily local newspaper. Well, yes and no. He shows me it's Zocalo Acuna, the paper from Acuna, a city nearby but over in another country. 
Zocalo will cover big news from South Texas for Spanish-speaking readers, but it's not big on covering the local races on the ballot on the Texas side next week. And had I been here on a Friday, there is an online news site that puts a paper edition on the stands one day a week. My son hooked me up to the Internet New York Times, but uh, nah, it's not the same. I want, I want to have something to hold. Bob Marshall, retired hospital administrator, says he is a big fan of Texas Public Radio out of San Antonio still. How do you find out about the local people running for office? Oh, the woman that cuts my hair. Yeah, she knows everybody and all the gossip, and I know exactly who to vote for by talking to Bibi, the woman who cuts my hair. Does she so, fact check her information? That's my only question. I don't know, but it's been pretty reliable, though. Valverde County once had a seven days a week newspaper, the Del Rio News Herald. It folded for good in late 2020. And you need a time machine to understand what's missing now. We had people covering business. I had people covering what's going on in the economy, who's covering the economic development issues, who's keeping an eye on just what kind of deals is the city council cutting. Diana Fuentes was editor and publisher of the Del Rio News Herald and left a dozen years ago when its business model was still in fair shape, supported by ads, the paid publication of legal notices, and subscriptions that could pay for extensive local coverage. There were always issues with the coaches, and are you paying the coach more than the, you know, you're paying the math teacher? Nowadays, they're not covering that sort of thing anymore. Fuentes is currently executive director of IRE, the investigative reporters and editors nonprofit. Who's going to cover the school district in Del Rio? Uh, well, we've just moved our periodical section to the front of the library to give. Barbara uh, Galvan is reference access, librarian uh, at the Valverde County Library. In. We uh, try to keep as many. Uh, papers as possible, but it's harder and harder to find news locally so far off the beaten path. It is a small town, so we do have a lot of personal interaction with people who are running for local offices. We do get the uh, League of Women Voters handouts uh, for the elections, which is really nice, but they don't cover local politicians. It's only state and federal. The head of the county board of commissioners, Judge Lewis Owens, did try to find investors to save the News Herald. We were trying to buy the paper itself and everything that went along with it. They had a magazine, they had the newspaper, the building, everything. His thing was preserving a way to print all the required legal notices. I just couldn't put it together. I think the building itself would have been well worth it. Candidates running in next week's primary have their names on big campaign posters placed at intersections around town. And the library does have a decent internet connection if people want to come in to do their voting research ahead of time. Galvan, the librarian, takes no political sides, but she is on the side of context and fact-checking. You just need to verify, 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 and it, through multiple sources because, you know, like I said, it's very important to get the pro-con um, on any subject. And remember I said there is a weekly local newspaper here? It's part of a nonpartisan online news site updated throughout the day that rose up when the old newspaper closed. Publisher Joel Langton. This is not a news desert. That's a crock of crap. We'll address that tomorrow. Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism has the county-by-county breakdown of news deserts across the country, defined as places with 
Very limited access to credible and comprehensive news that connects them with grassroots democracy and also gives them a sense of belonging to a greater community. Links to all of our Democracy in the Desert coverage this week, accumulating at Marketplace.org. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, provider of an all-in-one management platform with a suite of fully integrated applications designed to simplify and connect every aspect of business in one software. More at odoo.com. And by Betterment, the automated investing platform that helps make it easy to be invested for the long term. Learn more at betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Checking markets, S&P and Dow futures are little changed at the moment. NASDAQ futures up a tenth of a percent. The 10-year interest rates start the week down 4.24%. And I see stock in a Danish firm called Zeeland Pharma up 31% this morning after positive results for a liver disease drug that can also treat obesity. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Twilio Segment. Segment brings customer data together for real-time insights so companies know each individual like they are their only customer. Learn more at Segment.com. And by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on Think or Swim. More at Schwab.com. AT&T says it's giving a $5 credit to customers most affected by that network outage last Thursday, which left some without mobile service for much of the day. Regulators are investigating. Here's Nova Safo. The $5 credit amounts to the cost of a full day's service, according to AT&T CEO John Stanky. He announced the compensation plan in a letter to employees. But neither he nor the company have said how many customers will get the automatic credit. The Federal Communications Commission is investigating the outage. The company says it was caused by a mistake made during network expansion. It was not a cyber attack. The outage also affected AT&T's FirstNet service, which is its dedicated network for emergency responders. The company says it prioritized restoring that service. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. It's a $5 credit, not cash back, but if you prudently take $5 from elsewhere and invest it 4.37%. For 30 years, it'll be worth $18 in the year 2054. Factoring in inflation, the $5 will be worth $5. David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. A relative heat wave starts today and should last through Wednesday. It'll be in the low 50s today under skies that'll slowly clear. It falls to the low 30s tonight before returning to the low 50s tomorrow. Clouds move in throughout the day Tuesday, setting the stage for rain on Wednesday. It's 38 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. After eight years under a far-right party that weakened its democracy, Poland now has a new government that is trying to rebuild that democracy. The damage the previous government inflicted on our legal system is a catastrophe. This is not a task that'll take months or a year. It's going to take an entire term of office to undo. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.